0: Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill was born into a wealthy family on November 30th, 1874, in Blenheim Palace, Oxfordshire, England.
1: He went off to war very early, first as a correspondent, and then as a combatant, had this dramatic escape from prison camp in the Boer war wars in South Africa. That was printed, and he became a kind of national figure at a very early age. Just before World War I, in 1911, he was the first Lord of the Admiralty. In 1915, he resigned his position in the government and went to France to fight on the front line until his unit was disbanded in 1916. After World War I, he was out of favor with the British. He'd made a decision about Gallipoli. It turned out to be a disaster. So he retreated to his country estate, wrote, lectured, stayed attuned to what was going on. He was something
2: of a maverick politician, and not everyone got along with Winston. It took the rise of Nazi Germany that made people consider Winston Churchill a potential national leader.
0: Churchill returned as first Lord of the Admiralty the day Britain declared war on Germany, September 3rd, 1939. Less than a year later he became Prime Minister.
1: Churchill brought a great clarity of thinking of the reality of the threat that Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany meant not just to that island nation, but to the world. He gave them hope.
0: In the summer of 1940, Hitler launched what Churchill termed the Battle of Britain. In London alone, more than one million houses were destroyed and more than 20,000 civilians were killed.
1: The story is that when he got the word that Pearl Harbor had been bombed, he was joyful, not because the United States had been attacked, but because he knew that the United States would have no choice but to get into the war, and now it could be won.
0: On May 7, 1945, Germany surrendered to the Allies. More than 300,000 British soldiers and 60,000 civilians died during the war. In July 1945, Churchill lost the prime ministership, but remained a force in government.
2: In 1951, he was again elected prime minister under the impression of a potential expansionist Soviet Union and people felt that Winston Churchill was the right person to stand up against tyranny. In
0: 1953, Churchill was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature and knighted. He served as prime minister until 1955 and afterwards continued to serve in the House of Commons until 1964.
2: On January 24, 1965, Churchill died. The state burial was one of the greatest meetings of political leaders of the 20th century.
1: I think uh, Churchill will be a great man down through the ages. He gave voice to the common hope of free people. I think he's one of the great men, not just of our time, but of all time.
2: He was a soldier, he was a historian, an inventor, a reporter, an athlete, a painter, a novelist, a horseman, a bricklayer, a gardener, a linguist, a teacher, a strategist, and a statesman, and a prime minister. Phew! One could certainly make a case that Winston Churchill was the most interesting man in the world. As we saw in that video, the man who was recently voted the greatest Englishman in history used his relentless energy to pack a lot into his 90 years on earth. We know a lot about Churchill's leadership during World War II, but the man had a remarkable second act as well. After politics, he turned to writing and was so good at it, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Oil painting was another hobby, and Churchill became quite good at that too, winning competitions and seeing his works purchased for galleries and private collections. Even Pablo Picasso was a fan of his work. With all those accomplishments on his resume... You'd think this would be a man whose final moments would reflect warm satisfaction. But alas, Winston Churchill, the man whose battle cry was, Never give up, said on his deathbed, I am convinced that there is no hope. Before passing on, the man known as the British Bulldog blankly declared, I'm bored with it all. So what kept this great man from feeling satisfied? Why was he still so thirsty after a life well lived? What made him believe that life was nothing, all hope was gone, and that his existence was merely dust in the wind? I got a chance to see an interview with uh, the writer from Kansas who wrote that song. and He was on a spiritual pilgrimage, and he really tried a little bit of everything if you've ever done research on him. From skepticism to New Age to uh, Hinduism to Christianity, and it was ultimately his longing or thirst for something more. He had success, he had money, but he really longed to be more than just dust in the wind, and that song expressed that thirst he had. And Winston Churchill, after all the things that he accomplished, like, oh my goodness, and he still longed for a higher meaning or a higher uh, sense of connection to a greater purpose. We're going look at it today. If his end quote was, I'm bored with it all, Jesus' end quote is going to look at my thirst. So I've invited uh, Beth Guggenberg to come with us and to share a little bit about the spiritual thirst she has seen working with orphans over the years. And you know, one of the things we think is so critical, we've been working with back-to-back for around over 10 years. Come on up, Beth. Um, and part of we find that when folks go on global mission opportunities, so we have, I think more people from Horizon go back to back than any other church, we feel it is so significant to go and get face to face with real needs. And you don't see your own spiritual longing sometimes any better than when you're in the context of seeing orphans longing in connection with God. So can we give a warm Horizon welcome to Beth? Thanks for being here today, Beth.
3: Appreciate it. Good morning. It is it's so good to be here. Oh, we have a long history with Horizon, so coming here to be with you all always makes me feel like I'm coming home. I appreciate the fact that I've seen lots of you on the mission field. Some of you have served in Cancun with us and in Haiti and India, Mazatlan and Monterey, so we don't all look today like we do when we have our paint clothes on, but um, I still I enjoy being here with you all. And it's fun to be here, a part of the Seven Sayings series Actually, that phrase is what I practiced most out of the whole thing I was going to say today, so I didn't mess that up, the seven saying series, and specifically to address what it meant when Jesus hung on the cross and said these words, I thirst, and I don't know if you can remember back to some time that you remember ever being really thirsty. Have you ever been like on a long hike and been really thirsty or on traveling somewhere or sick somewhere? I always serve in really hot climates, so I felt really thirsty lots of times, but I was thinking to myself, this might get us off on the wrong foot for me to tell you this story about myself. But recently I was thinking I was really thirsty. I was at Grand Canyon University, I was speaking at their student chapel. It's in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh it's a huge chapel. There were about ten thousand students there that had gathered, and so the sound system when you're gonna project your voice over ten thousand people is very sensitive. And I was backstage and I had like dry mouth, you know, and I knew like this is the kind of sound system that Everybody was going to be able to hear it, and I was feeling kind of like, oh, my gosh, I need a drink of water right now, and there was nothing, or I didn't have anything with me, and I could hear them out front starting to, like, do my introduction, and I didn't have time to go find anywhere, but the worship band, they had their stuff kind of over on the corner uh, in the backstage, and this is a college, um, you know, a college chapel, so they had, like, half-open bottles of, like, Red Bull and, like, you know, vitamin water and Gatorades, and I'm, like, looking, I'm, like kind of looking around the corner at all the students and thinking about what the conference, and I just was like, oh, who cares? And I grabbed one of their Red Bulls and just downed the rest of it. And, uh, yeah, that, I knew that might get us off to the wrong start. But I just wanted you all to know that no matter how thirsty you ever and desperate, I mean, that was that took an act of desperation for me, no matter how desperate you've ever felt being thirsty, it doesn't even uh, come close to imagining what it was like when Jesus said those words. We'll read together. In John chapter 19, verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a hyssop leaf, and they put it in his mouth. You might think to yourself, at least I started to think to myself, why did he tell us that he was thirsty? We have no other recorded words of complaint. He didn't say, like, my head hurts from the crown of thorns or my back hurts from all the times they've whipped it or my hands hurt because there's nails through it. Like, he decided to let us know that he was thirsty. There must have been more meaning. That that actual expression was pregnant with meaning more than we could ever um, even dissect this morning. And it meant more than just he needed somebody's half bottle of Red Bull. He, he he gives us a hint right off the bat by saying, knowing that all things are accomplished and that the scripture might be fulfilled, we can be certain that he was fulfilling what he already had told us in the Old Testament was going to happen on this day. It tells in, in Psalm 22, he says, My strength will be dried up, my tongue will cling to my jaw, you will bring me to the dust of death. It says in Psalm 69 that for his thirst they're going to give him vinegar to drink. In Isaiah 53, it talks about how he's going to bore the sins of many He indicated his thirst because he wanted to make sure in case anybody missed it. Hey, this thing that's going on right now, this is what I told you what's going to happen. And as a result of this this crucifixion and my resurrection in a few days, I will bear the sins of many. He told us that this was his story so that we could continue to understand that that which he promises in Scripture, he ends up fulfilling, that they can be counted on. My husband and I... um, We have a whole bunch of kids. Usually that comes out in the bio and people kind of gasp. But we have 10 children. And um, our 10th child we adopted a year and a half ago um, from Mexico. It was almost three years ago now. The Mexican government asked me if I would act as an ambassador between Mexican child services and U.S. adoption agencies because those relationships are pretty historically contentious. And I was interviewing children uh, in Mexico where I had been living who were eligible for international adoption. They were kids that had special needs really large sibling sets, older kids that Mexican families didn't want to take into their homes. And all day I was meeting all these kids, and we were creating dossiers. In walks at that point, 11-year-old boy, and he had hair gel and a bunch of swagger. And uh, the psychologist was there with me, and she said, Hey, you know what? Beth was supposed to interview you, but let's turn the tables. Why don't you ask her a couple questions? She was trying to break the ice between the two of us, because as I read in his file, he had a pretty traumatic history. And I remember thinking before he even came in the room, this is going to be a really hard case to place. So he started to ask me what was on his mind, like, hey, does it snow in the United States? And do American kids play soccer? And I heard in the United States pets have their own beds. Is that true? And uh, (laughs) I answered the affirmative to all of those. And then the psychologist goes, I think you probably have bigger questions for her than that. And he's like, okay, well. You know, I've never actually seen an adoptive kid that was happy. I'm just wondering in your life, like, have you ever seen a, a happy adopted kid? I was like, oh, buddy, yes. And I got out my phone. We had had a family wedding two weeks prior to that. And uh, my older brother has adopted three children from Ethiopia. So there was this cousin pictures where his black babies and my brown babies and all of our biological white babies were hanging all over each other the way cousins do. And uh, I was, he was just flipping through looking at, at those pictures. And while he was looking at him, I said, hey, you know what? I want to tell you something. Genetics doesn't make a family. Last names don't build a family. Love is what makes a family. And he looked up at me and he goes, well, I guess find me a family that looks like this. And I thought, oh, I think I just did <laughs> But adoption doesn't happen right away. You know, it, takes, it took us another 18 months before we were able to complete that process. And there were lots of ups and downs in that storyline, and lots of moments, if I'm honest, where I was trying to back out of what I felt that day like I committed to do. But to me as an adult, I could watch that process unfold. I could see we were creating paperwork, and then we were translating paperwork, and then we were submitting a paperwork, and then it was approved, and then we were getting court dates. And I knew we were marching towards this goal where this young man would come into my family full time. But to him, he was just living in a government orphanage. And yesterday looks like today, and today looks like tomorrow. And he was beginning to be fearful that what we had said we were going to do actually wasn't going to happen and about a year into the process we were having Skype dates with him twice a week the government was allowing that and he told me that he was really basically depressed and I said okay well here's what I do when I get afraid overwhelmed concerned nervous any of those things I just remember what I know for sure to be true and I just find that rock and stand on it so he and I We didn't share the same faith, really. I said, I'm going to tell you what I know for sure to be true, that you can count on. You can count on that you're my son. I don't care what any government says yet. You are my son. You can count on the fact that I'm coming for you. It doesn't matter how long it takes or how much we have to do. We are coming for you. And you can count on the fact that God has a plan. And we might not always like it. And we might not even know how to to understand it. But we can always trust it. And so we would sign off our Skype dates with those three words. He would say, I'm your son, you're coming for me, and God has a plan, and we can trust it. And on that note, we would seal that time together and in hopes that it would give him the energy and courage to do it again in a couple of days. And so we used to do that in Spanish. I lived in Mexico 15 years, so we spoke in Spanish. The first time he practice those things in English, it was on my laptop. I took an iPhone video of my laptop, so not high production quality, but I just wanted to show his dad, like, hey, listen, he's starting to say the promises in English. And I brought that little video to show with you today.
0: I am your son. You are coming for me. God asks at where We can trust their.
3: when it came time to go to court he was now past the age of 12 and that meant he had a voice in his own adoption and so we went to court and he was really nervous because part of his history is that he'd been in courtrooms before and they hadn't ended up in ways that were beneficial so that past trauma came to visit him the day we stood in front of a judge and the judge looked at him and said young man you need to indicate to me why you believe this family is the right family for you and he just froze he had no words so like it was uncomfortable after a few minutes, and I was like, "Hee hee, I'm sure he's gonna say it any second now." Like 18 months later, and all these dollars and miles later, like, come on, buddy. But uh, he just, you know, he he didn't have anything for me. And I started rubbing his back a little bit, you know, like looking at the judge, like, can he write it down? Like, do we have any other <laughs> other options? And the judge just is staring at him, waiting for him to give his own testimony. And then all of a sudden, his little head popped up. And he looked at the judge, and he said. I am their son, and they came for me. And I can go with them because God has a plan, and I'm going to trust it. And I told him later, that's exactly why we put truth inside of our hearts, so that in those moments when it counts the most, we have it ready at hand to use. And as he's come here to Cincinnati, and we spent the last 18 months learning about public school and American soccer and all kinds of things that have been snow and all kinds of things that are new to him, I've been teaching them about Jesus who had those exact same promises available for us that day on the cross. He was telling us all when he indicated his thirst that he was God's son. And that God had sent him for us. And that he had a plan. And I'm sure in that moment Jesus didn't like it. And I'm sure in that moment the people around it didn't understand it. But as we come to understand scripture, we know that we can trust it. And that promise is true for all of us. When we, hear, when we hear him say, I thirst, he was indicating that he was God, but he was also letting us know that he was totally human. That he was legitimately thirsty. Throughout the, the Gospels, he'll refer, reference himself as the living water. In fact, he says, if anybody's thirsty, you can come to me and I'll give you everything you need to drink and you'll never be thirsty again. He tells us in, in the book of Jeremiah, hey, Drink so deeply from me that you don't need to go to your own places for water. It says, don't, don't go build cisterns of your own making. Don't hold your own reservoirs. What I have to offer you is enough and plenty. So when he says, I'm thirsty, the living water says he's thirsty. He's essentially saying, I am all poured out for you. The cup that I've taken is now completely empty. It's, it, this spring inside of me is extinguished. This is utterly all of it. And on and, and on any given day, I can have some of those same feelings. I don't know about you. I can feel like the cup is all dried up. I don't have anything else to offer. I'm all poured out. I don't have anything. And Jesus did all of that, so I never have to be in that place again. So that when I get to a place where I don't have what I need, as a result of his sacrifice, I have access without end to all the water I might ever need So I'll never have to be thirsty. And the way that that can play out is in any given relationship I have in my life. When I get to the end of myself and I think, I I don't have any more patience right here. I don't have any more self-control. I don't have any more wisdom. I don't have any more joy. I I don't have any more love for you right now. Like my own resources, they're all spent. This last year, um, since I've seen you last, I've had a series of surgeries as a result of a BRCA2 diagnosis, and I had a hysterectomy and a mastectomy, and during that season this year of those surgeries, I wasn't um, reading my Bible very much because I couldn't even focus on the words. I couldn't, I was in a lot of pain, and I couldn't, there wasn't, I, I didn't have the luxury of that kind of attention. And when I don't have that regular source of living water pouring into me, then all kinds of thoughts can creep in my mind that have no business being there. And I don't know about you all, but during the day, most of the time, I think about unicorns and rainbows. Like, everything's fine. As long as the sunshine and everybody's going to be fine. But at night, sometimes thoughts come to me that are dark and scary. And I think, like, you know, we're going to go to jail, and my kids are going to die, and we're going to all, you know, have tax evasion. I don't know. Like, I have, like, these really terrible thoughts. Is anybody here that ever has hard thoughts at night, right? Can I not be the only one? Okay. We'll just get to point three if you don't ever have hard thoughts at night. But I have hard thoughts at night sometimes. And one night, I woke up, and I was just having all this hard stuff going on. So I reached over to my phone because I was going to read my Bible. I knew I needed the living water. I, was, it, I, w- I felt spiritually thirsty in that moment, and I knew I needed it. And I, I noticed for the first time that the app on my phone that I used for the Bible had an audio feature. And I, I was in the gospel, so I just hit play. And the person reading that audio Bible was a man, and most of the gospel are the words that Jesus says. So sitting there in the dark of my room with my phone on my pillow, it sounded like Jesus had, like, called me, you know, because it was like these (laughs) – and I'm listening to these words, and he's telling me about his truth. And I finally found that rock with which my feet could stand, and then I fell asleep in peace. And that became a tool that I used throughout this last spring and summer. I would use my audio Bible on days when I couldn't focus on – reading the word. Well, one time this fall just I was telling someone, it doesn't make any sense to come visit you all and not tell you the truth. But here's the real truth. This fall one day, one one Saturday night, my husband and I were in a conflict. Anybody ever have conflict with their significant others? You're in the wrong church, I suppose, if you don't, but um anyway, we were having a fight. And we love each other deeply and don't do it very regularly, but man, uh, we have pretty fiery personalities, so when it happens, it kinda happens. And so we were having this Saturday night conflict and I wish The whole house could just freeze while we resolve what we have to say. But the rest of life keeps happening underneath your feet, right? And so in the middle of this conflict, my 15-year-old son needed a ride somewhere. And so Todd agreed to go take him somewhere. And he looked at me like, I'll be right back. I'm like, no worries. I'll be here, you know. And so we leave each other. And I'm thinking, I'm going to, you know, reiterate my point. I'm going to gain some energy. I'm gonna I'm gonna be ready for him when he comes back. But the truth of the matter is I was drinking in that moment water from my own well. I kinda dug my own cistern. I wasn't drinking from the living water and it didn't taste very good. And when I was left alone with that water, I knew how bad it tasted in my mouth. That's not how I want to talk to him. And so I got my auto Bible out because I did not want to open my Bible. I'm just telling you, I was sinful enough in that moment. I did not want to open my Bible, but I knew I needed it. So I just got my phone out and I started, I hit play and I was just laying on my bed, listening to the Bible. And he comes in also ready for round two, but you can't kind of come in the house yelling at a wife who's laying on the bed, listening to her Bible, right? Like, so (laughs) he comes in, sees me laying there and just lays down next to me for a minute. And the very next thing we heard was a passage out of Mark that said, A house divided against itself cannot stand. And I just held his hand for a moment in that, and all of a sudden it didn't matter. It wasn't that I didn't just still think and feel all the things I was feeling 30 minutes before, and he didn't still think and feel all the things he was thinking 30 minutes before. But once you actually taste the living water, nothing else actually matters. Jesus said, I thirst. On that cross so we would never ever have to thirst again he's thirsty for our salvation he says just a few days before the cross if anybody's ever thirsty you give him a drink of water and when you do so you'll be doing it like you're doing it unto me he, he encourages us over and over again to give water to people that we don't even know and that are unsuspecting i was speaking at this thing in miami florida called the champions of the faith it's kind of like the christian oscars and uh I was coming straight from Haiti, and my flight was really late, so the event actually had already started, and the producer was crazy backstage, frustrated that I wasn't there. I had no time to kind of get my bearings. I walked into backstage. He's like, okay, you're on in 12 minutes, and I had prepared some notes I was going to share about Mark Chapter 5, and I walked out onto the stage, and all of a sudden, I saw sitting in the front row someone who who was receiving that night the Lifetime Achievement Award. Her name was Vonette Bright. And Vonette and her husband Bill found an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ, which has been credited with sharing the gospel with over a billion people on the planet. And I just threw my notes kind of on the podium, and I bent down on the ground, and I said, oh, Mrs. Bright, I haven't ever met you before. But over 20 years ago, my then-boyfriend, now-husband, and I went on a Campus Crusade mission trip to the country of Albania where we spent the afternoon with an orphan, and it marked us and moved us in a way... That we pledged our hearts that day to the nations and today have the opportunity to co-lead an organization that impacts orphans on three different continents. That is fruit hanging off of your tree. And she acted like she'd never heard anything like that before, although I'm sure she's heard it tens of thousands of times. But there were some shiny apples in the audience that night, people that I could have been really tempted to be impressed with. But I kept thinking to myself, she, has, she, has, she is a model for me of it's better to give a life away than it is to build one. Winston Churchill said, we make a living by what we get and we make a life by what we give. Jesus demonstrates for us how important it is to sacrifice on behalf of people that we don't even know. He hung on that cross for people he intimately knew but who were yet to know him. If we're going to model his actions, we need to lay our life down and give water around to the people in our life who are unsuspecting or seemingly undeserving because we have no idea of the way it may bear fruit in a place that we will possibly never see. It could be that he said, I thirst because he was physically preparing himself. It says in in a little bit later in the passage that he's going to shout out in a loud voice his final words. And so after hanging on the cross all that time for him to shout out in a loud voice, he may have realized my human body actually needs some liquid so that I can say what I want to say at the volume with which I need everybody to hear it. God has a will and it's to be done. It says in this this book called The Suffering Savior that a man named uh, Dr. Krumacher wrote, the blood vessels of his sacred body, they were almost dried up. This dreadful fever, it would have raged in his frame. His tongue would have cleaved to his jaw. His lips would have burned. There's scarcely a greater torment than that of insatiable search he he was obedient to something he was submissive to a plan that god had written more than we can ever imagine there is blessing waiting for us on the other side of obedience as he lived those last moments and indicated his thirst and was given that sour wine to prepare for that last moment he was walking into a story that had been written a long time before One of the places that we get a chance to serve is in Haiti, and I was going there with a team uh, of people who had never been, and one of the first things you notice when you get to Haiti, you get inside this open-air truck, and you drive from Port-au-Prince Airport to where our base is, and you have to go by a tent city. Even today, there are tent cities still up from the 2010 earthquake, and this man was sitting beside me, and he was full of questions, which I'm used to, but he was like, how can there be so much money coming to this island, and there's not any change, and how do those people live like that, and what are they doing, and who is working, and it was fine, but like an hour later, I was like very excited we landed at a children's home and I could run off and hang out with an orphan. And I got there, and the director of that orphanage said to me, hey, Beth, um, will you spend some time with Ronaldo? He's one of the older boys in the children's home. He's trying to figure out what he wants to do with the rest of his life, and he's not really confiding very much in me, and I know you all have a good relationship. And I, when you talk to a 17-year-old here in this country about what you want to do the rest of your life, you talk about majors and colleges, but... So a young man who lives in a country with 87% unemployment, it's a different kind of conversation. So we spoke for about an hour, and he wasn't really giving me much. And then finally he said, okay, I'll tell you what I think I'm supposed to do, but here's the deal. I don't want you to laugh, and I don't want you to tell anyone. And I said, okay, I won't. And then he whispered really quietly, I think God wants me to open up a recycling business. And I started laughing. And then I yelled over to my friend Bill, the guy who'd asked me all those questions for an hour on the track. I'm like, Bill, Bill, come on over here. And I'm like, Ronaldo, tell Bill what you just told me. And Ronaldo looked at me with these steely, angry eyes like, I almost didn't tell you. I'm not telling this guy. He's a total stranger. He was so mad at me. I'm like, Bill, tell this guy who you are. Tell my friend Ronaldo who you are. And he looked at me like, you want me to tell about my privileged lifestyle to this young man, this orphan from Haiti? I'm not telling him. And I'm like, Bill, I'm not taking you off the island until you tell him who you are and what you do. And he said to this, my friend, Ronaldo. he said, my name is Bill Tigner, and I own U.S. Shredder, one of the United States' largest recycling companies. I'm like, Ronaldo. God brought this man here so that you could talk to him about your dream. They began to have a conversation with each other that culminated in Bill calling the only organization in Haiti that currently does recycling, aptly named Haiti Recycling, and he tells the— uh the owner of Haiti Recycling, apparently recycling folks have their own trade magazines. So he knew already who Bill was when he called. And he said, hey, I just want to um, ask you if you'll trade me something. I'll give you three days of my life. I'll help you with your buying. I'll help you with your processes. I'll help you with all your systems. But I want you to give my friend Ronaldo here an internship at your organization for a year. I brought a picture of um, Ronaldo. He has spent the last year at a recycling internship uh, at Haiti Recycling. And When I think about that story, I think about how God had written that a long time before we ever got to Haiti. He had done all kinds of things to get Bill on the trip. He had done all kinds of things to get me there the week that Bill was there. He'd done all kinds of things to whisper a very unheard of dream in the heart of an orphan. I mean, I told him he's going to have lots of job security because there's plenty of things laying around to recycle in Haiti. There's a story that God is writing for each and every one of us, and obedience means we get to step inside of that blessing. Jesus knew when he would be obedient on that cross, he was going to walk into a blessing not only for him as he resurrects three days later, but for all of us that would then follow after him. He did all of that. He bore all of that thirst so that we would never experience that curse of thirst again. In the Old Testament, he talks a lot about how thirsty people are without him. He says that Israel will be a parched land and be filled with thirst, and the tongue of one afflicted by God's judgment will stick to the roof of their mouth for thirst. Like this concept of being hungry for what God wants to do for us and thirsty for his righteousness is a common theme throughout Scripture. But he, on that day and on that cross, it will teach us later, and John gave us now the right to be called children of God. We get to be co-heirs in the inheritance that he is going to experience in those days to come. He thirsted that day so we never would have to again because I now am the recipient of all the same blessings that he has made available to him from his father. And God talks about how we are adopted into his family and how because Jesus is his son, we can be too. And I like all that language of adoption because of the adoptive children we have in our family um, in 2000 and probably 14, we were living in Mexico and my teenage son um, woke up when he was a freshman in high school. He woke up and he said that his stomach hurts. And, I, you know, mom of the year, I was like, I think you'll be fine, you know, just go on to school. And uh, that, that's one I should also ask for a raise of hands for, but um, if you've ever done that. Anyway, an hour later, the school called me and said, hey, he's actually not doing okay. He's, doubled over in pain we think you need to come right away so by the time I pulled up to the curb of the school he couldn't even stand up straight and I remember thinking to myself which side of our body is the appendix on like I think this might be something like that I just drove him straight to the emergency room and there after some initial tests they confirmed to me that he was indeed um, had an inflamed appendix and that we were going to be scheduled for surgery in a couple hours So we were laying there. He was mildly sedated, and we were laying just in one of those rooms in the ER waiting for a nurse to come in to collect his medical history, and um, all of a sudden, he just sat up and started screaming, and I mean, it brought all the medical personnel on the floor to our little cubicle, and they confirmed to me that his, his appendix actually had just ruptured, and now we were sprinting down the hallway with this gurney to an operating room where they were going to try to rush to get his appendix out before that toxic went all over his body so the nurse who was supposed to collect our medical history was rushing down the hall with us and she starts asking me all these questions and I start answering at the top of my lungs his paternal grandfather had heart issues and his paternal grandmother had cancer and I don't do very well with anesthesia and I'm like going through all this stuff and then he sits right up and he goes mom, mom I'm adopted I was like (laughs) I brought a picture (laughs) I brought a picture of him And you know what? In that moment, I forgot. Like, I forgot. His history is so... He's been with us since he was six weeks old. His history is tied to my history. He is so fully grafted into my tree that his history is my history. And his future is my future. In that same way, this opportunity that Jesus gives us to never have to be thirsty again. that His history is our history. What he did on that cross is now ours to recount. What he promises will come is now the future we can look forward to. He took the love he had for us and made it the most prominent message he would ever speak of ever again. As we close, I I just want to remind you that God writes the very best stories. We don't have to look very far for what it is that he wants to do in and through us we just have to make room for him we have to make a choice to not want to be thirsty and to want to drink to want to drink that water because the heart of that of the savior that hung on cross, the heart of life it's really good it's loving and it's available to each and every one of us thank you